Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd like to ask you to do two simple things. First, if you could leave us a review on your chosen podcast player. And second, if you could share or send this link to another grassroots coach. Those two things will help us spread the word about the podcast and grow our community. Welcome to the Athletic Evolution Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Craig Harrison. Craig loves to show young people how to tap into their inner drive, take control of their learning, and pursue their dreams with purpose and passion. An expert in youth athlete development, Craig specializes in the physical and mental sides of sport. He's a coach, a researcher, a host of the popular podcast, The Athlete Development Show, the husband of former Silver Fern and FIVB international beach volleyball player Anna Harrison, and a father of three. With a unique ability to communicate complex ideas in a simple way that inspires action, Craig supports youth athletes and their parents to unlock personal performance and fulfill sporting potential. So welcome to the podcast, Craig. Thanks, Rob, mate. Good to be here. Great to get you on. It's, uh, it's brilliant to, to line up the different time differences and, uh, and manage to, co- to coincide. Yeah, it's always a hard one, eh, trying to work that out, you know, on my podcast. So talking to people all over the world and it's aligning schedules and uh, working with time zones. But, uh, you know, over here in New Zealand, we're, we're ahead of the world. So we get to see the sun a day before you guys. <laughs> Brilliant. So for those who haven't come across you before and haven't listened to an episode of the Athlete Development Show, give us a bit of an, uh, an overview of, of your own journey in sport and, and how that's led to, to what you're doing today. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. We, we were talking before we came on eh, about the, uh, how, it, how it is to be in the, on the other side of the microphone. And one of the questions that I love to ask my guests is, tell me about your backstory. Um, so... so so you can guess Thinking the about it for that now. question then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? And if I look back into the archives of my world, then it really was a, an upbringing that was dominated by the outdoors and spending time in sporting environments. Uh, and that really was just because I was afforded opportunity from my parents. Uh, we were... We're in a, in a family where I had grandparents that were very active and, and doing a lot in the sporting space. So that was a big part of their world. Uh, team sports, individual sports, uh, lots of different experiences that I was lucky enough to, to then come across because of that. And we grew up in, a, in Auckland. Uh, Auckland's changed a lot over the last 30 years, 35 years, uh, but we grew up in a little cul-de-sac and I just remember spending a lot of time on on my bike and in trolleys that we'd built in the garage and hanging out with the neighbours, just causing trouble really. Um, so we used to we used to cruise around the cul-de-sac. We'd, we lived right next to a train line, so we spent a lot of time probably doing stupid things around trains and jumping down from, uh, you know, barriers and, and whatnot. So that was that was really a big part of what I got up to and school was close by. So we walked everywhere. Um, there wasn't a lot of time spent in cars then and, and the club started playing football from a pretty young age. If I remember correctly, it was around sort of four or five where I picked that up. Um, it was really informal, really sort of low level structure. 
you know, I really just cruised down to the club and played with my mates. Um, and then, and then track and field was the other big one for me. So I started running as a five year old. My older brother was involved and mum threw me in the, in the van and we cruised down to club night once a week. And I had two younger sisters and once they were of age, then they got amongst it as well. So that was a big part of our sporting experience was Tuesday nights down at the local track and field club. And uh, yeah, it really progressed from there. Uh, found that I had some talent, if we want to throw that word around. Um, uh, but a lot of it was to a early mature kind of effect. Um, I, was, I was bigger and faster and stronger than a lot of my mates early on. So had some success as a, as a young adolescent. Uh, and that served me really well right up until my mid to late teens where, as we know, everybody caught up. And I probably didn't have the mental fortitude that I needed. And um, I mean, that's pretty a common story now. And it's a really interesting piece of the development puzzle. But things were pretty easy for me. Uh, I had, had a lot of success and then all of a sudden things got tough. Um, but yeah, I ran track right through, played football right through, decided to specialize as a 17 year old um, so yeah track and field was what I did and I, I pursued that for another few years uh, until a hamstring injury really got me down um, so I blew out a hamstring at least three if not more times and just really stopped my ability to continue training and if I look back I think a lot of that was because of the dumb stuff I was doing in the in the gym I was introduced to strength training at the age of about 16 and I was working with a guy in the local gym and we spent a lot of time doing anterior chain stuff and very little um, posterior work. And, and I think that there was the, the main cause of having massive quads and hamstrings and glutes that didn't work. So uh, anyway, so yeah, uh, decided that, uh, once that injury was was a consistent pain, um, then as a lot of us tend to do, I decided studying it and uh, spending hopefully a career in the industry was where I needed to be. So uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the early formative years of my time, really. Mm. So what's your the underlying driver for you in terms of your research, your coaching, the love of sport, what is it that, that really gets you going when you start to think about coaching and, and research in this area? People, mate. Uh, that's my fascination, really. Is, and, and this was quite a, a turn of events for me over the last probably decade. And, and it was a result of spending time running the LTAD program here in Auckland, where I was afforded a lot of time and a lot of space to play and explore and follow some leads that I wouldn't have otherwise be able to follow if I was working a really strict nine to five. And, and I really credit my, my boss for allowing me to do that. The program was fairly new. Uh, I was on a really long leash uh, from, from his point of view and we could take it wherever we wanted to take it. Uh, and so I just became really fascinated with young people which I never really thought I'd end up working in the space. Uh, but once I did, uh, once I got an opportunity to do my PhD and, and study 
the youth athlete and spend a lot of time with them, I really found that kids are really interesting and really cool and really fun to be around. And I wanted to understand them first and foremost. So that's my main driver is, is understanding how young people develop, uh, how they think, um, how they're motivated and, and definitely how they move. I'm really fascinated with the development of movement. Um, and so, yeah, I just, just spent a lot of time trying to understand some of these things and, and had the luxury of being able to then go and explore in my, in my application. So, and I, and I'm continuing to evolve my understanding and my philosophy changes a little bit with time. So I'm updating my beliefs and, and the resultant behaviors of how I work with kids ongoing. Um, and that's just a real fun f- piece for me. I, I'm driven by understanding the new and trying to figure out how we can apply it. So if you had to kind of describe where your philosophy is at, at in the present moment, what would be the best summary? It's always a hard question, isn't it? Trying to, trying to articulate a philosophy. Uh, but there's some, there's some key principles that I probably refer to more than a philosophy. And those principles sit within uh, some different pieces of the development puzzle. Uh, so first and foremost, for me, it's about relationships. Uh, and, and that really sits at the heart. If we were to describe a pyramid or align my philosophy to a pyramid, then at the bottom would definitely be relationships. And I work really hard on developing trust and communicating in a way that makes sense. And I think as a practitioner working in the youth space, it's really important to understand children um, and to communicate in a way that they, they can align to, really. I mean, they, cognitive development is something that we need to take into consideration and we can't necessarily talk to a 11, 12, 13-year-old the same as we do to an adult. Um, and so that very much sits at the heart of, of my philosophy is relationships. And on top of that is the, the psychology of those relationships and then the psychology of the young person's behavior when it comes to sport. So I've done a bit of a 180 when it comes to how I think about the importance of psychology over the last 10 years. I was, I, I studied exercise physiology i was an x and an o's guy very black and white in the way i thought uh and then i started working with young people and i figured that sometimes they just don't give a shit about the content (laughs) and because they don't trust you or uh they don't believe that what you're giving them is of use and i love how young people are black and white like that they are they really showing their behavior most of the time, whether or not they think you're for real. Uh, so, so that drove me to really require a good understanding of psychology. I've just spent a lot of time upskilling in that area and talking to a lot of experts. Um, so that really sits at the heart of, of the relationship piece. And then uh, I've got a whole bunch of principles around movement. So for me, I, I, most of my contexts that I work in are, are movement orientated. Uh, but they're holistic in the way that I drive them. So it's never just about learning how to move. It's, it's about learning how to 
to grow as an individual uh, within a movement context. Um, so yeah, mo movement, I, I guess, would be the next piece of that pyramid. Um, and then, and, and at the whole, the, the whole time, I'm also thinking about the transferability of what we're doing into the context that's driving the athlete's motivation. Uh, so to give you an example, if I've got a basketballer that I'm working with, then basketball is the thing, right? Like that's the context. And I'm always working to transfer the knowledge and, and the understanding back into basketball because that's why they're there. So it's very easy to get lost in the strength and conditioning world and think that the most important thing is the gym, where in reality, it's just not. Um, so how I can make sense of what we're doing within the basketball context is really important. Um, and, and that's a challenge because if, you, you know, if you're working in a group, then every athlete is there for different reasons. And and their meaning that they're drawing from their environments is going to be different. So we need to be good at relating what we're doing to the reasons that our kids are there. Uh, so, yeah, well, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a bit of a brain dump in terms of how I think and how I work. No, I like it. It's, it's really interesting because I guess I'm kind of doing a, a similar evolution myself in terms of, you know, when you come out of uni and you, you have all this SNC noise that you downloaded and, sets and reps and potentiation and cluster sets and this, that, the other. And you, the more you go down that route, the more you realize there's a human being standing in front of you who thinks differently and communicates differently and doesn't care about cluster sets or potentiation or sets and reps. And just like you're saying, wants to know how to make them better in their context. But to overcome that chasm, you have to develop those skills which are going to improve your communication and understanding their perspective and all that kind of stuff. So it's really interesting because I think as you see a coach evolve, you see a movement away from black and white sets and reps to things that are a bit more gray in terms of psychology potentially. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, in saying that, I think one thing that is important not to forget is that the content knowledge is still a really big driver in what we do. And, and I've seen those complete 180 shifts ending up um, valuing the art of coaching if we could describe it that way and kind of forgetting about the science as well and it's it's not a black and it's not a you know they're not mutually exclusive and if we don't know our content once we do develop a relationship if we can't show the young person that we have competence in our understanding and we can give them what they need in order to get better then we lose a really really important piece of what we're doing as well uh, so this is why coaching is so interesting is um, it's a constant evolution but we always have to weigh those pieces up and and that's that's what I've found myself doing as I spend a lot of time like I said digging into the psychology and I kind of forgot about the movement um, and so right at the moment um, I'm probably spending a greater percentage of my cognitive energy on on movement right really understanding the the science of movement uh, and and sort of relying on my ability to create good relationships and, and understand the psychology piece and it's yeah always trying to trying to work those two things together to evolve as a as a holistic practitioner and it's uh it's a challenge mate but it's it's awesome fun mm. so obviously people who, who will have come across you before will 
I know you from your work at AUT Millennium and, and what you've been doing there. So can you give us a bit of an overview about that process of setting up the academy there and your involvement and how that evolved? Yeah, so I, I jumped into that in 2010. And at the time, I, I was working in high-performance sport as a strength and conditioning coach. And it was basically an experience that if I reflect on was one of some missing pieces. So I was seeing a whole bunch of, as we would describe them, elite athletes coming through. And while they're having great success in their sports specifically, there were still pieces of their development that I looked at and thought, you know, they, they could be better. And, and if we had filled those gaps earlier on, then they really could have maximized or developed more of their potential. And so I started looking around and I was, I've always been curious from an academic point of view. And so I was trying to find the next thing to do. Um, and I was really lucky a, a PhD scholarship opportunity came up um, out of the blue, really. Um, I'd, I'd knocked on the door of a, of a friend working at AUT at the time. And, and he said, well, there's nothing at the moment, but if something comes up, I'll let you know. And literally three weeks later, he emailed me with this opportunity and it was to run what was then called the LTAD program at AUT Millennium here in, in Auckland. And it was one of the first LTAD programs in the world. Uh, so it was founded not by myself, but a, a couple of other guys that had really close links to um, the original proposer of the theory, even um, Bale out over in, um, you know, another part of the world. And, and so they had, they had actually had lots of conversations with him and it was a really, one, like I said, one of the first practical uh, environments in which some of these ideas were being played out. And so, yeah, at the time it was, all the theory was brand new to me and I was trying to figure it all out and really get up to speed because I was running the practical program, which kids between the ages of eight and sort of 17 would come in and we'd deliver the LTAD philosophy. Um, so from fundamentals through to um, training to train, I think was, was the last one that we actually thought about. Uh, so those, those were the groups and that's how we worked it. And yeah, that, that's kind of where it all started. And then over the 10 years that I was working and uh, running the program, we evolved it to keep up with the, with the current evidence. Um, we adopted different models as we went along. Um, we started working with uh, uh, Rodri and, and JLo's youth development model when, when that came out, um, which, was, which was really cool and kind of evolved the LTAD model. Um, we know that there are holes in the LT, LTAD model a little bit, and so we were looking for something a little bit more robust, particularly from a, from a physical development point of view, because that's what we were doing. We weren't working in a sports-specific environment. We had kids that were coming in from all sorts of sports, and they were there to develop their athleticism. And so it started strictly physical, um, and then you know, as we were talking about before, my interest in the, the psychology really started to drive some of the changes and we, we were passionate about making it a holistic environment. So we started to think about some of the core principles around 
psychological development, um, you know, commitment, emotional control, confidence, and how we could start putting some of these ideas into the environment in which we were working. And so that evolved. Uh, and yeah, we, we really got to a point where we had our own model um, and we were stealing the best bits from what had been published out in, out in the literature. Uh, but they were, for me, they weren't, none, none of those models were complete and we had to, we had to come up with something that was working for us and delivering on the vision that we had in the program. Um, and, and the vision for us was about developing efficient movements, uh, who were autonomous, confident and resilient in the way that they acted. Um, and so, yeah, it was a, it was a real evolution of what we were doing and, the program became aligned to AUT University in 2016. Um, so from that point on, we then had students that were part of our coaching team. They were doing small research projects as part of their industry experience that was required for a paper. Um, we had, we aligned to some PhDs. Um, so when I picked up my fellowship role with AUT University in 2017. Then we started to have some PhD students that were out in environments and we were learning from their findings and we were bringing them back into our program and trying to keep up with the latest evidence. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just a great opportunity for me to, to try and figure it all out um, and to make the best experiences possible for the kids that we were dealing with. Uh, so it was, and I was really, really passionate about the evidence leading what it was that we were doing, but, but never forgetting that it's, it's, it's a practical application, uh, in what we're trying to achieve. And, and there's no research study that I've come across that clearly articulates how to do that. Um, so yeah, our job as practitioners and as a coaching team was always to take the evidence and try and implement it. Um, and that's, as you know, is a, is a real challenge. Uh, and it got to the point, uh, October last year, where I felt the program had um, needed, needed some fresh eyes, needed a, uh, a new perspective. And so, and I also needed a bit of a change. So resigned from my post and are now doing the same type of things, but um, out there in other environments. Uh, and so I still, I still work with the guys in that program and, and we still, we'd still talk a lot about what they're doing and continuing to support that evolution. But, but I no longer lead the program. Hmm. So tell us about some of the, the other projects that have, have popped up. So you kind of alluded there to, to doing some other things. So I've seen you've been fairly active in some other initiatives. So give us a bit of an overview of, of what the aims and objectives are there. Yeah. So there's really, there's a few different things uh, on the go for at the minute. And the first would be working with athletes um, pretty much one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, so I decided that I wanted to get back into the depths of coaching and, but do it in a real high touch way um, to continue my understanding of young people and to, to help a few um, achieve some really great outcomes. Uh, and, and also to, you know, to use that as a platform to understand movement even more so and to evolve my philosophy around um, 
how kids learn within a movement context. And I guess that's thinking back to your question before about philosophy. Um, one of the things that I do believe in is <clears throat> the importance of variety. And this is part of one of the research, uh, research PhDs that we're doing is we're looking at the movement variability and, and how that plays out in skill acquisition. And I, and I think, you know, early, early findings are suggesting that variability is really good uh, and it's something that we need to embrace more of. So, and, and from a engagement point of view, then I don't think we can beat it. I think creating really interesting problems for kids to solve and helping them to engage in appropriate challenge. Um, and, and if anyone has come across Chicksammy High's flow, research, then we know that working just outside your comfort zone or just above uh, your level of skill, if the challenge is pitched at that point, um, then you're going to be engaged to really work hard to solve that problem. And you're also going to want to come back tomorrow. And so, yeah, spending a lot of time trying to create environments that really meet the, the level of, of ability that, that the athlete has and doing it in a way that's quite chaotic. Um, some, of the, some of the learning pedagogies out there is talking about, we'll talk about working on the edge of chaos. And, and that's really where I, where I like to be. Um, so the sessions that I run with my kids are, are really kind of random. Um, there's a lot of movement exploration uh, and sometimes it's hard to, as a practitioner, be sure that I'm helping them and we're making progress. Uh, but I never have a problem with kids not wanting to show up and not wanting to work hard. And so I am confident in the fact that, that one, that is, a, that is a competency in itself. It's driving motivation, it's driving commitment, it's driving confidence, all these really important things. And their physical abilities are going to benefit from, from that in and in itself. Um, so, I mean, we still test, we still do all those things and, and they, are, they, they typically will trend in the right direction, but it's, it's not traditional reps and sets that you'd see in a lot of um, strength and conditioning gyms. So, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot more chaotic than that. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm trying to evolve movement and how I think about creating really inspiring environments for kids to be in making it very age and developmentally appropriate um, and, and, and not with, without any rush. I think we need to be more patient. I think we need, to, we, we need to meet kids where they're at and we have to you know, drop our ego a little bit in terms of developing some of these competencies that for a lot of us, you know, in our tertiary education, we were made to think are really, really important. Um, but, but a lot of the kids I work with, you know, like they're not, they're not, they're not going to want to lift to really great extents that they don't need to be two times body weight strong. You know, and I, and I also, I continually thinking about well, how strong is strong enough, right? Like these kids are, they're playing in secondary school competitions. We need to get them strong enough to resist and restrict injury and to help with performance but what is where is that point lie and i'm i don't think we know that um which is which is an interesting question that we need to think deeply about
Um, so yeah, that, so that's what that's one of the initiatives is just working with kids um, on a really deep level, uh, and then the other new thing that I've just sort of launched is a is a platform to engage with parents, and that was that came about through a lot of conversations with our parents in the program where they were looking to support their kids and they didn't really know where to turn. There wasn't a lot of information available for them. And a lot of the concepts that we were wrestling with and helping their kids to understand, the parents had really little awareness of. And so I thought that helping the parent to understand some of these things would be a really interesting place to go. Uh, but, but not necessarily so that they could implement trainings or sessions at home. I don't think that's useful. Um, so, so the point of the program is about creating an environment at home to help their kids thrive. Um, so that's about setting it up to establish certain types of beliefs, um, to help them track some of these important variables from a growth and development point of view, um, mainly for awareness sake, um, so that they can have important conversations at home about a niggle that maybe a 12 year old picked up, you know, and, and if they, if they're aware of the fact that they're in the middle of their growth spurt, then, then that can spark a really important conversation. Uh, whereas most parents have got no clue about the fact that their kid is circa PHV, they're growing really quickly. Uh, and the effects, as we all know, on, on injury and training load and skill acquisition are really, really important. And so what I've tried to do is design an environment where parents can come in and access some information uh, at, a, at a fundamentally um, basic level. And not, not basic from dumbing it down, but basic from here are the key principles. I'm not going to I'm not interested in driving a lot of content into you. I'm, I'm interested in helping you to become aware of these principles and then supporting you in, a, in its application. Um, because what I, what I found is like, it's not about a dot to dot for parents. It's about, here's an idea, go and play with it and then bring it back and let's talk about it. So a big part of the program is, a private community where parents can talk to each other and they can share stories and they can share ideas and they can ask for help. Um, and so, and we, and we know from a learning point of view that that's the way that people learn and, and the way that we can drive behavior change, which is ultimately what it's about. Um, so, and supporting the parents along the way, right? We know that it's, it's hard being a parent uh, is really, really challenging. It's, I know it's the hardest thing that I, that I do with my three. Uh, and so if I can provide support to parents through the sporting context, then, uh, you know, that I'm really excited about being able to do that. There's so many cool things in uh, what you've just kind of given an overview from both. So I really want to dig into that. So one of the things um, picking up on, and this is again, a train of thought that I've been playing with recently is that what you said about, you know, being patient and having long-term athletic development. I think we're really good at talking about long-term athletic development, but really bad at then going and doing short-term um, and teaching kids to back squat straight away or teaching, you know, in, reinforcing the importance of a result on the weekend but i like what you were saying about movement variability and one of the 
the things I've been playing around with is actually it's uh, it's actually lazy coaching to just think of load on the bar as our first thing to change. Like you know, when we're looking at kids who are going through that PHV and that skill development, that actually movement variability and complexity is a variable that not a lot of people play around with. And actually there's a whole lot of gold to be unlocked there, especially during that kind of adolescent awkwardness where they're almost recalibrating their bodies in space. So do you kind of speak a little bit to that and potentially the benefits of, of that for athletes in that, in that time, time point? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And it's capturing my attention at the minute and I'm trying to understand it a little bit more scientifically, which is a challenge because we don't necessarily have all the evidence to back it up. Empirically, I can see it. Uh, if I throw a lot more variability at my athletes, then they tend to be able to solve problems more quickly when they face something that's new uh, and, and, and untested. And so to give you an example, if I'm looking at an acceleration position, which, which we know we want to help our athletes to find because the mechanics of sprinting, when they're done more efficiently, are going to produce faster outcomes. Uh, and so one of the things we could do is try and get our athlete into that position as quickly as we possibly could by cueing either externally or internally, uh, supporting them from a, this showing them. So, uh, no monkey see monkey do type ways where I show them the position and, and they try and copy it. Uh, and you know, so that's traditionally what we're trying to do. It's like, how quickly can I get my athlete into that position? Uh, but on the other hand, I think what I'm really fascinated with is, well, movement is variable in and of itself. And so out there in sport, nothing is ever the same. Like it, you're never going to say exactly the same acceleration position except if they're on the track uh, or something that's much more as david epstein would describe a much more kind performance or learning environment where it's much more predictable and you've got more control but a lot of my athletes they operate in, in really wicked environments and and there's so many different aspects to to that environment that are changing that they need to be adaptable and so the question becomes where does adaptability come from um, and and from a movement point of view there's there's a little bit of new research that suggests exploring the motor cortex uh, creating a bigger movement library results in a enhanced ability to self-organize and to solve new problems so one of my underpinning principles when it comes to movement is to build the library so what does that mean? Well, give them as many possible problems to solve so that they can experience lots of variety um, and lots of movement solutions that are gonna build, build their movement library. Um, and so it's creating range to steal, you know, David Epstein's um, title of his book. Uh, it's movement range, it's creating the library of movement skill so that when they come across a new challenge, you know, for example, on the basketball court where they're running down and they're taking a pass and they're having to make a dodge and then jump in the air and they're getting pushed by an opposition and they're making a three pointer or, or a layup. And then as they come down, one foot lands on the opposition's um, 
shoe and they have to create or they have to land in a position that's going to absorb force and not get injured. If we don't give them opportunity to experience variety in doing that, then I think we're leaving them a little bit short. And so this is where I think the difference between movement and as a skill and the physiological adaptation that we think is so important in the gym kind of butt heads a little bit and we need to be doing both. Um, so we need to create better skilled movements and, and I, my approach to do that is, is by providing a lot of variability, um, which is probably a little bit different to the movement competency literature that suggests that there's a right way to move, uh, which I just don't agree with. Uh, I don't think there is. I think there's, I think there's wrong way to move and we want to push our athletes or help our athletes to move away from that. Um, you know, so valgus at the knee, for example, we don't, if we see a lot of that, then we know that that's related to injury risk and we want to help our athletes to, um, to see less of that, but there's not a right way to squat. Like I, I fundamentally just don't agree with that idea. Uh, and so how many different ways can I help my athlete to squat? Um, and, and by squat, I just mean lower the center of mass. Um, you know, like the, the way I look at it is squatting is a tool in order to develop the ability to flex and extend at the hips. Um, and so that's an underlying movement principle that I want all my athletes to be able to do is flex and extend at the hip. Uh, and, but they need to be able to do that in a variety of different ways and in, under a variety of different conditions. Um, and so what you'll see in my sessions is that everything's different. Like it's, you know, if to, to steal some of the language from the constraints based pedagogy is it's repetition without repetition. Um, if that makes sense. So nothing is ever exactly the same. Mm. Again, there's, it's like, there's just gold in this conversation. I was having this pretty much this same conversation with uh, the last guest I had on this podcast, Katie Richards, who is a sports psychologist, but from a gymnastic background. And she talked about the, the concept of, of going clean at a competition, which means you don't make any footfalls. Everything's perfect. And she said, that's completely unrealistic because we don't move the same way twice, which is exactly what you're saying is that, you know, although to the naked eye, it might look the same. Actually, if you were to measure the joint angles and the forces, they would never be too perfectly you know, um, aligned reps. But I think also you really hit a, a great thing on there with the, the kind of long-term progression. And it's something that, again, I've kind of shifted towards because especially in SNC, it's easy to get carried away with metrics because we like to justify our job by saying, well, they squat two times body weight, they can do this, that, and the other. But what's a lot more difficult to measure is how adaptable is your athlete? You know, what about when that, that center of mass is shifted to the left slightly or to the right slightly, or we, we change it. So we raise, you know, the bar up overhead or anteriorly or posteriorly. We don't have those same frames of thought around things, but actually in the game of rugby, for example, you're never going to hit two rucks the same way. You're never going to scrum exactly the same twice in a row. And you need to have those affordances and adaptability. Like you say, it's, it's so important, but we can be a bit one dimensional in the way we think about strength training because we're often guided by, this is the metric and therefore a nice big tick in my corner, SNC job done, but how much does that actually carry over? Yeah, absolutely, mate. And one of the things that I've been seeing a lot of, which convinces me that, uh, you know, traditional squatting, lunging, pushing, pulling in the gym uh, needs to be challenged a little bit is 
when you provide um, uh, an interesting movement problem to an athlete and they solve it in a way that looks really efficient from a movement point of view, and then you, you isolate the movement and you, you make it a lot more explicit and it becomes a much more conscious activity and their movement breaks down and we go, well, we need to fix that. Uh, but in reality, when they're on the sports field, their movement is, is much more efficient, right? So, so what are we doing? Like, are we potentially getting in the way of good movement by deconstructing it in the gym? Um, so, yeah, it's a really important thing, uh, you know, piece of the, of the development puzzle that we need to think about more deeply and, and carefully and go well. What is it that we're trying to do here? Yes, yes, we know strength is, is correlated to uh, restriction of injury, uh, which is important, and, and balance, and some of these other metrics that we can, we can get hold of. But at the end of the day, they're athletes that are playing sport. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not about the performance in the gym, ultimately. Uh, it's, it's about making sure that we're providing opportunity for them to be as best as they can be on the basketball court or on the football field or whatever the context that they're, they're performing within. Um, so, so that's where the transferability I think is crucial. So whatever we're doing in the gym, we always need to transfer it to as close to the sport as we possibly can. So if they're a, if they're a footballer, then what can we do to transfer the ability to hinge or the ability to, control force, control gravity um, in a context that feels more like football. Uh, and, and we can do that. We just need to get a little bit more innovative and imaginative when it comes to the work that we do. Um, and I mean, one of the arguments is, well, that's not our job. Um, and, and yeah, perhaps, but I think with kids, it's not only a matter of, of helping them with movement skill that, that that affords, but also there's a psychological component to it. And if we can help athletes to understand the why behind a lot of these things, I think that's a real powerful tool as well. Um, and so I'm always thinking about how I can relate movement to the sport. Um, so, and that's, admittedly, that's easier to do when, when you're working one-on-one -on -one because you can, you can adapt as you go and you can take them out of a more explicit squatting context and put them into a jumping and diving context if they're a goalkeeper, for example, which, which I do a lot of. I've got a, I've got a young goalkeeper and we're always, there's always a ball on the go and there's always application to his sport. And the cool thing about that is that he can talk to that now so he, he understands very clearly that hip hinging is going to help him on the field in these ways. And this is, for me, it's about learning. It has to be about learning. It has to be about connecting the dots for the young person because my ultimate objective is to empower them to take their own, to, to take control, you know, to become, as, as my mate Jeff would say, uh, it's to become their own CEO of body and mind. And if I can help them to achieve that, then, you know, the, the high performance S&C becomes somewhat, you know, 
unrequired. <laughs> um, I mean, that, I'm taking that. I, I'm I'm talking a little bit you know, in jest when I say that, but too much of what is happening at the elite level is is autocratic. It's it's too, there's too many robots, um, and I think we're letting people down by not creating better learning environments through their development. Mm. It's really interesting because I, my next kind of question on that would be how much do you think that comes down to the coach having confidence in themselves to allow an athlete to play with a movement without interrupting and, and cueing something straight away? Because what I've noticed is coaches who are inexperienced want every rep to look right. And the second there's a fault, they'll come and interject and say, you need to fix this. But actually, it's usually the more, you know, the more experienced coach who say, I want you, we're going to do a set of 10 and then we'll, we'll talk about it. You know, what did this feel like? You know, where did your body feel in space? They're trying to get the athlete to tune in rather than I'm the font of all knowledge. And the second I spot an error, I'm going to come over and help you, or not even help you fix it. I'm going to tell you how to fix it. Whereas more experienced coaches are allowing that learning to happen within the athlete and then almost draw it out of them. Yeah, and what would I, what I would say to that, Rob, is that's to be expected. Um, you know, like it's part of the program that around a day UT Millennium, we had a lot of young coaches come through. Um, and, and if I reflect back to the start of the journey, I was that young coach. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what you see. It, but it's, it's not their fault. That's a, that's a manifestation of their training. Um, and so what we need to do as leaders and as, as mentors to help the young coach come through is, is to set it up in a way where it's driven by a philosophy. Um, where this is what we believe to be true. And, and in my case, variability of movement is a big one. Uh, and so how do we achieve that? Well, here are some of the tools and tactics in order to allow the young athlete to do that. Um, and we, we have a, a particular kind of point of view when it comes to coaching. And it's important for those coaches that I work with to, to know what they want to see. Uh, and so that, that's kind of the starting point. So if you're working through a particular movement, then you want to know what the outcome looks like. Um, and then you need to ask yourself the question, well, what am I seeing? And that's another really important point. So distinguishing between where you want to go and where you currently are. And then the coaching piece becomes, well, what am I going to do about it? And running through those three questions can be really, really useful because it, it allows you to take a second and just pause and figure out a little bit of a solution in your head before you automatically jump in there and make a change. Um, and so th those questions I work with a lot with, with the, and myself still, I still try and ask myself those questions. Uh, you know, like, what am I trying to see? What am I seeing right now? What am I going to go? What am I going to do to change it? Do I need to do anything to change it? Uh, and that's coaching, isn't it? Like, I think you're referring to the difference between instructing and coaching. Um, and there's a big difference. And it's a real skill and it takes time and it takes mentorship and it takes patience to, to get to the point where you're happy to let some things go because you may have seen it before and the best possible thing that you can do at the, at the minute is to say nothing. Um, so mm. it's really we, interesting we I think uh, there's a few coaches that have 
uh, I've either heard on podcasts, people like Kelvin Giles and stuff like that. And it's, you know, what, what advice would you, would you give young coaches? And they say, say less. Like, what, like their advice for themselves is I need to shut up more and just let an athlete play, you know? Um, because we do sometimes have to bite our tongue to, to hold it, hold back that explicit information. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's, it's all perspective, isn't it? And while that's easy advice for us to give, it's incredibly hard to take because if you're saying nothing, then what are you doing? Uh, you know, because saying nothing is reliant on the ability to say the right thing when it matters. And that's just not possible when you've got little experience because you don't know the right thing to say. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's a real challenge. We have to, we have to, we have to be better at helping young coaches to, to figure out a bit of a framework in order to do this. Hmm. Kind of comes back to what you were saying as well about flow and operating on the edge of, of chaos and the edge of your comfort zone as well. You know, sometimes we're comfortable coaching in that instructing way because that's what we're used to, but actually to hold back, it kind of creates a little discomfort within us and, and requires us to think a bit more laterally or come up with a different way of doing things. Yeah, it's, uh, we, we search for certainty, don't we, as, as the human race. And whenever we get pushed in a direction that is unfamiliar, then uh, it takes a little bit of an adjustment. Um, and that's part of our mindset. You know, just as a, a, an athlete needs a challenging mindset, uh, we, we need that as a, as a coach as well. Uh, and so all of these things, and, and when we think about the holistic development environment, all of the things that I'm doing, with my kids, I need to embrace myself as well. Uh, and that's where we used to run a, a development program for our coaches coming through um, at AUT Millennium. And where we always started was with the coach themselves and their awareness of who they are and how they work. Uh, and that's, I found that that's really, really crucial. Uh, but what I also found is that some coaches aren't ready for that. Um, particularly the younger coaches, they're not quite at that point where they're comfortable enough and they're prepared to be vulnerable enough to look at, look at themselves in the mirror and go, right, like what's the truth here? Um, where, where are my strengths that I need to build on and, and where are my weaknesses that I, I either need to, you know, to eradicate or, or to, to develop in a particular way. Um, so that's, that's a hard one. Um, and I think the best coaches are prepared to, really consider who they are and why they do what they do and and move forward from that point um but yeah it's personal development is tough it's it's it requires a a steadfast effort and and a real ability to take on board support and and sometimes criticism so kind of shifting i guess we've, we've touched a little bit on it already but what are the things you think need to be present in a in a training or sporting environment to help engage children in a purposeful but enjoyable way ah so many things rob <laughs> where, where would i even start with that question uh Well, the, the relationship needs to be prioritized, as I've always, as I've already kind of mentioned. Uh, and so investing time into that from the outset uh, is really, really important in my mind. And so, and valuing, value, valuing the voice 
of the person that you're coaching. Uh, so, you know, as educational pedagogy evolves, then the importance of the student voice or the young athlete's voice has become really, really important. And just yesterday I had a conversation with one of my ex-master's students who looked at the experiences of some of our first 15 rugby players over here. So schoolboy rugby, it's arguably the best schoolboy competition in the world when it comes to rugby. And it's been commercialized uh, to a certain extent because of where the All Blacks are and, and how we culturally you know, position rugby in this country. And you know, rugby, schoolboy rugby's on TV, um, and there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of expectation, and we're seeing changes in the coaches' behaviors based on the environment that they're operating in. And but what we talked about a lot was well, who's asking the boys, right? Like, what who's asking the athletes what they want? Uh, and it's so easy to forget, but ultimately, sport is for the athlete and particularly in the youth sector um, so we always need to be asking ourselves well why are they here what's important to them as an individual and how can i as a coach facilitate their development in a way that aligns to their purpose um, so that's where that's where uh, my mind goes to first is making sure that we understand that purpose uh, and if they're younger, then helping them to develop some purpose. Like, like I'm really big on passion and the development of passion and the freedom of expression. Um, I, I get a little bit cynical with the compliancy that's swept across education and coaching. Um, where the adult in the room stands up and says, this is what's best for you. And, and the kids have become so compliant that they just nod their heads because that's not how life works and it's not how sport works. And, and so when you throw them in the deep end, when they experience chaos, if, if we haven't given them an opportunity to be expressive and be free and explore and control their learning, then they just, they sink. Um, they don't have the skills to be able to survive. And so that, that for me is massive. There needs to be a lot of autonomy, informed autonomy, um, and that's based on cognitive development and a whole bunch of other things. But that's, that's really, really important. Um, so that needs to be there. Um, and, then, and then you can start drilling down to the specific needs of, of the athlete from a more specific point of view. So... I'm a, I'm a believer in change what's going to give you the most forward momentum. And we need to identify that and don't try and change everything at once. And from a behavioral, behavioral change point of view, we know that implementing a new habit, for, which is what a lot of kids are doing when we work with them, um, adding something to their already complex lives, and, and often highly scheduled lives is tough. So if we go in trying to get them to adopt something huge and do a whole bunch of new things, then it's a bit of a recipe for failure. So, so I, I use the term movement snacking a lot. This is to give you something a little bit more tangible. 
Um, so when it comes to the development of athleticism, I'm most important. I'm most interested in adherence to to a to a regular habit first and foremost. And if I can't get that, it doesn't matter the specifics of my content. They they're just not going to do it. Um, so movement movement snacking is a term that I use a lot. And for me, it's about here's one or two things to snack on and try and implement it into your day. Uh, and if we can get some compliance, uh, if we could get some adherence, sorry, sorry, then, then we'll think about leveling that up. Um, but if I give you this really detailed full on program, um, keeping in mind that a lot of, a lot of my work is, um, is I, I see kids once a week and the rest of the time, I'll, my expectation is that they start to implement some of this themselves. Um, I, again, I think, having three hours in the week where kids turn up and do exactly what they're supposed to do in the gym is setting them up for failure. Um, like, like any learning environment, it's not about just getting in and doing the work. Um, it, it, it's about what is, what a good environments look like for learning. And some of that is taking the support away and helping kids to figure it out for themselves. Um, so, so yeah, that, that would be, a little bit more specific example of when it comes to what I, what I think is important is only give them enough to move them forward and no more. Um, because I, I think we overcomplicate it. We, we get way too deep into what we're doing and we try and change the world when in actual fact, just changing one thing is probably going to be much more beneficial. Totally. Brilliant. Completely agree with that. So what about shifting to kind of a coach uh, perspective? What skills do you think are unique to coaching youth athletes versus senior athletes that, that coaches who are operating at that youth level should be working on developing if they haven't got already? Yeah, I think the, I think the skills as a coach are pretty universal. Um, the ability to to communicate with somebody else, the ability to have empathy for someone else, the, the ability to take perspective, the ability to get outside of your own head and release the ego somewhat and put yourself in a position that serves the athlete in the best possible way. I think that's universal, whether you're coaching eight-year-olds or 80-year-olds. Um, what changes for me is some of the key pieces of content understanding that we need to know working with kids um, you know and so to to start with a pretty prime example then understanding growth is absolutely crucial uh, and that needs to be both from a physical point of view and from a psychosocial point of view so if we don't understand the adolescent brain we don't understand how a young person is going to go from really concrete thinking to something that's a little bit more abstract, then the conversations that we can have often will go straight over the top of a young person. Um, and, and when we understand cognitive development, then we can use things like metaphors and analogies much more effectively because those things are powerful when it comes to learning. Uh, and we can, we can change the way that we set up an environment for 
a 10 or an 11 year old compared to a 16 year old. So, so that's been a real change in my coaching over time is, is I need to understand where my athletes are at from a physical point of view um, in terms of their development. You know, and we could dig into the whole growth spurt and the prediction of maturation thing, which I think is, I mean, we've been doing that for almost 10 years. Um, so, you know, I, I think we are ahead of the curve a little bit in terms of placing importance on that. Um, so, and, and I know that all the, all the professional academies in the UK uh, and, and some other organizations around the world are doing that now. And Sean Cumming talks a lot about that. I mean, he's the go-to go guy and sharing that information and establishing that as a practice within our uh, environments is really crucial. Um, how it plays out in practice is, is always harder than how it looks in, in the scientific literature. Um, but that's for each organization to figure out um, or each coach to figure out but the importance of growth and understanding where your kids are at is crucial. Um, and then just, I think with kids, it's like, it's keeping the wider perspective in view all of the time. So while we love sport and while we want to see athletes go on to perform at the highest level, Working with kids, it, it's not where the majority of them end up. And so we need to make sure our motivations for what we're doing align to the reasons that the kids are there. Um, and if we can do that, then I think we're providing them a great opportunity to just develop as people. And as, as cliche as that sounds, that's what we're in. That's what we should be in the game for, um, because sport is a vehicle to develop people. Um, the gym is a is a context in order to develop people, uh, and so we need to understand people, and we need to understand their development. So, those are some of the things <laughs> that I would suggest are worth thinking about a little bit. Oh, brilliant. Really, again, fantastic stuff. So are there any kind of resources that spring to mind that you would point people towards who are coaching young athletes? Um, be it, you know, some of the stuff you've mentioned around flow or around movement variability or even just growth and maturation, anything that springs to mind? Yeah, resources are tough um, because I think it's the most important thing with the resource is to is to align it to where you're at in your development. Uh, so rather than just going and consuming it for the sake of consuming it, um, you know, a book, for example, if you, were if you were to read it today, might prove useless, but if you were to read it in two years time, might be the game changer for you. And so my, my advice to, and at least how I think about it, and I don't necessarily think that, that my advice is, is what people need to take but how i think about it as well this is a problem that i'm facing in my practice now how can i go and understand it better and what are the resources that are going to help me to do that um, so that's what i look for uh, and there's there's 
so many different things out there that you can access, whether it's, you know, text, whether it's podcasts, whether it's, you know, going and watching another coach, which I think is a really undervalued resource. I think if, I think the, you know, that's probably even the best thing you can do is to go and find an amazing coach and just observe them and take notes. Well, how do they do it? Because um, when you can see it and when you can feel it uh, and, and when you can hear it, then that's the best way to learn uh, rather than trying to consume, you know, a podcast or a book and, and then to transfer those learnings into your own environment. Um, so yeah, that's my thinking. And, and the other thing I would add is definitely explore ideas from outside of our industry because when you just read S&C, whatever it is, it becomes a bit of an echo chamber. Um, and it's a confirmation bias. Like we just read more of what we already know that reinforces our thinking and limits our creativity, um, which is a coach, as a coach, like, but that's what it's about. Like being creative, coming up with good solutions to the problems that you see in front of you. Um, so go and really spend some time outside of your comfort zone, devouring some resources that are quite abstract. Um, and I think that's been really beneficial for me is to, and, and like I said, way back at the start of the conversation is I had the luxury to be able to do that because time is, pr is precious, right? And I think that restriction in our lives forces us to think or to go and get a specific resource that aligns to exactly what it is that we do. But thinking outside of the square is a result of um, putting yourself in a position where new ideas come your way. So yeah, that, that would be my, my recommendation. It's probably not very helpful in terms of specific resources to go and find. I mean, you mentioned the flow stuff. Chick Stanley High's got a, there's a really good resource online that's lengthy but interesting. Um, lots of education stuff. The, the skill learning space, I think, is really fascinating. Uh, I think it's worth digging into uh, ecological dynamics. I think it's worth understanding constraints-based coaching. Um, and, yeah, uh, some, of the, some of the seminal work around growth and development, I think, is is probably worth your time as well. I think that's fantastic advice in terms of what you said around, you know, aligning CBD and resources to where you're at. Cause I've had that discussion with so many of the coaches that, that work with me um, around, you know, well, what should I be, what should I be reading? I'm like, well, what are your problems? <laughs> you know, like let, let's not start preparing for problems we haven't got. Let's look at the problems we have today. And I think, you know, especially in, in the current situation with, you know, coronavirus, having people at home, there seems to be webinars coming out your ears. Um, on everything you know from, from this that and the other which all might look attractive and, and, and interesting but really they're just entertaining they're not education because you're not going to take that away and apply it so I think it's that's really sound advice to actually align your learning with what you need to know to improve your practice tomorrow rather than something that might be interesting yeah I mean I, the difficulty quest the, the question becomes though is what are my problems and this goes back to the the conversation we had earlier where you don't know what you don't know, right? So if I think about what I did, 
um, a few years ago. And, and I'm much more specific about what I, what I read or listen to now. Uh, I, I just would devour as much as I possibly could. Uh, so I, on one hand, it can be, it can level you up more quickly if you're specific about what you read um, or who you talk to. Uh, but on, on the other hand, if you don't understand what it is that you, you do need, then it may just be better to go and expose yourself to a whole bunch of variety. Right? And we, we're back to that word, right? Like just <laughs> get some variability in, in what it is that you're, you're reading or listening to or exposing yourself to. And, and sometimes that, or what, actually what I would say is, and this is a bit of a random recommendation, but like I'm, I'm really fascinated in the pathways of people that get to a high level in their craft. Um, so I'm always looking for stories that particularly that start young and show those journeys, explain the ins and outs of their family environment, uh, some of the relationships, the key relationships along the way. And there's a great Netflix documentary called Chef's Table. I don't know if you've come across it, Rob, but it's brilliant. And it, and it, it dives into some Michelin star chefs and it shows their journey in, in most of the episodes from when they were a kid right through to the current time. And it's got some really interesting parallels to sport. Uh, so, so I'd highly recommend that series. I think it was, um, I, I found it fascinating. <laughs> I, I know some people that I've, I've recommended it to think I'm a little bit crazy and <laughs> how, how the hell is that going to help me in the gym? But, you know, if you open your mind a little bit and, and look for the parallels, then, and it's the, the cinematography is amazing. So it's worth watching just just for that. Mm. I think it's always w worth watching people who are, are chasing mastery in their craft, isn't it? To because essentially the process is very similar, isn't it? Whether you're trying to become a, a top chef or a top whatever, there's some psychological principles that are probably carrying over some some methods of how people are, you know, self-talk and all those kind of things. But we like to think that we're very special because we work in sport, or we're even more special because we work in tennis, and that can't be anything like rugby or anything like this. You know, we like to kind of segregate ourselves and say we're very, we're very special and unique. There are a lot of overarching principles of people chasing mastery. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, if you're interested in, in movement variability, then a friend of mine in the US has got a really cool uh, Instagram that you can follow. It's a, it's a, a Peros, A-P-I-R-O-S, um, at, I think it's Team Aperos. Uh, so he works with youth right through to professional athletes um, and that I'll just check it for you. Um, yeah, aperos.team, A-P-I-R-O-S.team. I'm really, really outside of the square thinker. So we have a lot of conversations about movement and he challenges the status quo. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, I'd recommend following his work. Mm. Brilliant. Well, for those people who are interested in, in going down the rabbit hole, learning a bit more about you, where can people find you on social media or websites, etc.? Yeah, mate. So uh, you can find most of my stuff under the Dr. Craig Harrison handle. Uh, so I'm on Instagram, uh, Twitter, 
under those two handles and Facebook as well. Uh, so I will post fairly regularly on, on all of those platforms. And then the other place to, to catch up would be my podcast. And, and that's a place where we get into some, some pretty deep rabbit holes with my guests. It's long form, obviously just like this one, mate. And, uh, you know, if anyone's just interested in following along that, you can just find it on iTunes or Spotify. It's just the athlete development show. And again, the, the key concept on that is to talk to people across a whole bunch of dis different disciplines uh, to draw better understandings and, and hopefully some practical applications to working with young people uh, through the lens of movement development. So, um, yeah, I can yeah, definitely recommend if people haven't, haven't come across that to definitely go and give it a listen. And I'm sure there'll be someone you know, some people's names that spring out, whether it's Valerie Adams or Kevin Mialamu or some of the other guests you've, you've interviewed. Um, Cause again, I, I really like what you've done there with, you know, like you say, across disciplines and actually speaking to the athletes themselves about their journey and giving them a voice as we kind of mentioned. Yeah, it's been fun and it's been highly beneficial to me as a practitioner to, to have an opportunity to talk to a whole bunch of different people. It's a great excuse. I'm sure you're uh, familiar with this idea, but you know, it, even if people wanted to just start a podcast and start a podcast for the sake of their development, I think it's worthwhile. Um, you know, just talk to people and learn how to question. That's been a really good skill for me is you know, as coaches, we need to be good question answer uh, askers um the art of the good question right can change the game in coaching so yeah like in a podcast is it's just one way of doing that but you know there's lot there's lots of other things but asking good questions is is a really powerful skill brilliant well it's been fantastic speaking to you today and and i hope there's been some benefit for the people listening because there's definitely been benefit for me so uh, thanks again for your time a pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me on.